to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. This is God's word. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the 
unspeakable sacrifice of our Savior Jesus. On this Good Friday, as we look at your word, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us to keep all distractions away from our hearts and minds. That we will focus our thoughts on Jesus, his perfect sacrifice for our sin. May we bless the preaching of this word, the understanding of this word, and most of all, the application of your word in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. My friends, in that brief video clip, as imperfect as that clip can be, we get the idea of what happened to our Savior Jesus. And so this morning, I want to focus our thoughts on Mark chapter 15, verses 21 to 39. And what we're going to look at this morning is the unspeakable sacrifice. The question mark, why? Why? What happened? And why did this take place? And so we see in our passage this morning, in Mark chapter 15, if you have your Bibles, you can keep that open to uh, that section as well, begins with the, the crucifixion. In verse 21, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And so we have that section there. Let me give you some events leading up to our passage to put this in its context. Jesus had spent part of the night in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He agonized in prayer there in chapter 14, Mark. Then he was betrayed by one of his own disciples, Judas. A very tragic thing to happen, isn't it? To be betrayed by someone, someone who is close to you, someone who you trust, someone whom you have spent years with, in this instance nearly three years, and then to be betrayed by one of your own. And then Jesus was arrested in the garden. Another of his disciples, Peter, would deny him that he knew Jesus three times. Then Jesus faced the trials with fabricated stories about him by false witnesses and false accusations and allegations. He was rejected by the religious leadership of Israel. He was handed over to Pilate, and Pilate declared Jesus guilty, even though Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. And we read of this in Matthew chapter 27, 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. He took water, we saw in that clip, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And then as we continue in, in Mark chapter 15, we see that the soldiers led Jesus inside the palace. And Mark tells us that they called an entire battalion together. And so we read in Mark chapter 15, that they clothed Jesus in a purple robe. They made him a crown of thorns. It's quite interesting to know that thorns and thistles are mentioned in Genesis chapter 3, 18 as part of Adam's fall and creation affected. And yet in Mark 15 verse B, the parallels we see that he's bearing a curse, the curse that lies over nature. 
And so they put this crown uh, on him. And this would have caused him to bleed. And then they made fun of Jesus, saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they struck his head. And then they spat on Jesus. The most despicable thing that one could ever do to another human being, perhaps, is to spit on them. And that's what they did. And then they mocked him. They belittled him. They take off the purple robe and put his own clothes back on him. And then they led him to be crucified. And so we get the picture, don't we, friends, this morning? We get the picture of the incredible humiliation of Jesus, the Son of God, so far. And we know from the other Gospels, Gospel accounts, that Jesus was flogged. In Matthew chapter 20, John chapter 19, we see that. He was flogged with a leather whip, with pieces of bone on the whip, as well as pieces of lead, so that it would cause deep wounds and cause his body to bleed. And the intent of this flogging was so that the victim would be losing blood gradually through the open wounds and therefore gradually lose strength in the body so that by the time of crucifixion, he had no resistance to offer. And I think this would explain why. Here we see in our text in verse 21, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. In verse 22, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means a place of skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. It's quite interesting, friends. Golgotha was a place outside the walls of Jerusalem, a bare rock near the city gates, so the victims to be crucified would be seen by all those who were entering the city on public display. And this public display was a defiant statement by the Romans. That is, if you insurrect against us, the Roman soldiers will be after you and we will put you in public humiliation and display at the city gates. And so, therefore, no one dares challenge Roman authority. And then, as an act of mercy, they give him uh, this, this drink, this wine mixed with myrrh. Why was that? You see, this, this combination, apparently, of wine and myrrh, dulls the pain. But Jesus says, I don't want it. And he refused it. Because he was willing to take the pain. And in verse 24a, we read these simply unspeakable words. They crucified him. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And this, friends, imagine that. The final act, the Savior is dying. The robe is taken, they put back his clothes, and then finally they take his clothes. And in the final act of humiliation, is fighting, gambling, 
to see who would get the clothes of Jesus. Now, why did this take place? The psalmist states in Psalm 22, which is a tremendous psalm. You can read that sometime. It's a messianic psalm. And the psalm says this, Psalm 22, 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So what was taking place here was prophecy being fulfilled, right? What God spoke many, many, many years ago through the psalmist is now being fulfilled in his son, Jesus. So they crucified him. And then they put an inscription there. The king of the Jews. You see, it was customary at, uh, at the time when someone was crucified to, to place the crime that the person had committed on the cross. And here they say, king of the Jews. And so the Romans were mocking the Jews. They were essentially saying, well, Jews, look at your king. Look at this, this pathetic looking person hanging on the cross. He is supposed to be the king, your king. Look at him. The king of the Jews. What a joke they were saying is your king hanging on a cross. And with him they crucified two robbers. One on his right, on his right and one on his left. Now these two robbers, I mean, the, the understanding here is that they were perhaps insectionists who were, who, were, who were going against the Roman government and authority, not perhaps robbers, but they are crucified next to Jesus. So friends, we get the picture here this morning that the crucifixion of Jesus was cruel. In Mark, the scene changes from the halls of the great to the appalling, appalling cruelty and grief surrounding Jesus' death. It was unjust. This crucifixion was completely and entirely unjust. If we believe the Bible, we know that we all deserve to die for our sins, not Jesus, he was innocent. Crucifixion of Jesus was shameful. It was generally reserved for political and military uh, criminals or for those who had no rights under Roman law. But Jesus underwent that shame. He took that shame upon himself, as in Isaiah 53. It was absolute humiliation. Those being crucified were stripped naked. It would happen in a prominent public location, depriving them of their basic human dignity. And so we get the picture that the crucifixion of Jesus was an obscenity. It was a scandal. And crucifixion was a horrendous way to die. I read through some of the, the commentaries in this past week, and I'm going to explain all of that to you, but very briefly, what, they would what would happen to the person crucified on the cross was at some point, the person could not bring himself up anymore to breathe, and so it would die of suffocation. And so it would explain that the soldiers would go around hating, breaking the chin bone of the person hanging on the cross so that the person could not push themselves, pull themselves up anymore to breathe. But when they came to Jesus, he had already died. Such was the horrendous way of death. Jesus did not deserve such a death, an unspeakable sacrifice. And further we see, friends, 
that those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and so forth. Verse 29 to, to 32. And so they, they cast out insults. See, just a few days ago, the crowd cried out, Hosanna, remember? When Jesus came into Jerusalem, Hosanna, here comes our king. And now, that has changed to crucify him. They used the words of Jesus to mock him. Aha, they said, you would destroy the temple and rebuild in three days. Save yourselves. Come down from the cross. Come down. And then they said this, he saved others. But he can't save himself. What, a, what an irony this is, friends. You see, Jesus saved others, right? He raised Lazarus from the dead. He healed the blind man. He healed the paralytic. He healed Peter's mother-in-law of fever. He cast out demons. People were coming to Jesus and he was, they were being healed amazingly, powerfully, miraculously. And these people had seen some of these miracles. They'd be amazed of his miracles. And now they say, well, you saved others. Come on, save yourself. Come down from that cross. Come down. You see, friends, the mocking and jeering that accompanied his crucifixion was part of the spectacle. And it was programmed into it to bring maximum humiliation on the victim on the cross. And that's what's going on here. But little did the people realize that by doing so, they were fulfilling one of these prophecies again in Psalm 22, verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. All things working according to God's plan and purposes. And so we see the cry here, don't we? In verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Mark gives us these three-hour time slots. Guilty at six in the morning, crucified at nine, darkness at 12 to three, Jesus dies at 3 p.m. Have a notice what's happening here, friends. From 12 noon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness over the land. Why? We read this in Amos chapter 8 and verse 9. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Imagine that. Imagine those who crucified Jesus. Imagine the chief priest. Imagine the people around Jesus at the time. Suddenly, there is darkness for three hours. Imagine, friends, at 12 this afternoon, we get out from this place. We probably get out before 12, we hope. <laughs> well, we get out at 12 o'clock, and it's dark, completely dark. Isn't it? 
for three hours. You see what was happening here in this darkness was an act of God. God was intervening here. But more than that, friends, prophecy has also been fulfilled. Yes, Amos speaks about, and there's a judgment prophecy there. can be also with the coming of Christ. But we get the picture that it is a judgment act of God. One writer puts it this way. Hell came to Calvary that day, and the Savior descended into it and bore its horrors in our stead. And uh, John MacArthur, one of the great uh, scholars, he says this, as God is the true power behind hell's punishing experience, God is the true power behind the darkness of Calvary. For here, he unleashes hell on his son. This was the cup that Jesus anticipated in the garden, the cup of wrath that made him sweat drops of blood. And then, because in those three hours, think of it, Jesus suffered the eternal hell of all the people through human history who would be saved. He bore all their eternal punishments together and did it in three hours. All your sin, the muck, the dirt, you know your sin, right? Anyone perfect here? We're going to have a cup of tea after the service. I would love to meet with you and find out how perfect you are, because I am not. But this Savior, this Savior took upon himself the cup of wrath that is your sin, that is my sin and yours, all the dirt, all the filth, all the rottenness in my own heart, in my mind, all my sin that takes me away from the living God. He took upon himself the hell of sin was on this Savior Jesus. Three hours. As you see, Jesus had been hanging on the cross for six hours. And this is the first time that Jesus does not address God as Father. First time. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, Psalm 22, verse 1. He was experiencing the full weight, the full brunt of his father's wrath for our sin. And he cannot be silent, but he cries out. It's, it's amazing here. Imagine, you see, our Savior has been drained of every ounce of energy. And it is said that victims at the cross do not cry out with a loud voice when they are about to die. Because there is no voice there. You see, the Greek word is the word we get the word, the English word megaphone. Mega. We use the megaphone, don't we? Some of us are gifted. We don't need a megaphone. <laughs> yeah. The megaphone is used to make a big noise. And here, the word that is used is the same word that gives us, Jesus did not, a whim, it was not a whimpering cry, Eloi, Eloi, Eloi. No, 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 no. It was a triumphant one. It was a majestic cry. You see, the death of Jesus was not some defeatist, poor man hanging on the cross. No, 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 this is a triumphant cry to the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he knew why he was forsaken. His mission was accomplished. And John records these words when he says in the gospel, it is 
finished. The Greek word tetelestai, finished. All the work complete, done. And at that very moment, something took place. Look at verse 35. And the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Why was this, friends? Why was this? You see, Mark is not simply making a statement here. What, was, what has gone on with the tearing of the curtain in two has incredible significance. Now, have you ever seen a curtain being torn from top to bottom? <laughs> Usually curtains, if they are uh, along the ground, there will be tears at the bottom, right? Generally speaking, not at the top. You see what was happening here is, on the day of, let me explain this. The Old Testament temple, the high priest was able to enter into God's holy presence, into the holy of holies in the temple. And this was only once a year on the day of atonement. And when he entered the holy of holies, he had to be carrying the blood of the sacrificed animals, a bull and a goat. So he carried that blood. And these animals had been sacrificed as a substitution for the sins of the people. And so with the tearing of this curtain, right there on that day, with the people being there at the temple, God is saying, all the work has been done. No more sacrifices to be made. Finished. My son has done it all. And so, friends, you and I have direct access to this living God through Jesus Christ. What a blessing, yeah? What a blessing. Good. Whoever that was, great. I love it. <laughs> right? Amen. I didn't know where that came from, but it doesn't matter. Oh, well, you're a Baptist. Welcome to the Prezi Church. <laughs> right? And th this is what happened. You see, God has done it. The work has been completed. Atonement has been done. The curtain has been torn once and for all. And we don't sacrifice anything else. And so we come into the very presence of God, anytime, anywhere, with confidence through Jesus Christ. And then we see the confession here, don't we? Something happened in verse 39. Have a look. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, what did he say? He said, truly this man was the son of God. Now the centurion was the commander of a hundred Roman soldiers. This was a hardened man. He would have been in charge of the execution of Jesus. The crucifixion there. While the mob and the Jewish crowd had been insulting Jesus, this centurion who stood opposite Jesus was observing Jesus on the cross. He had witnessed how Jesus prayed for his enemies from the cross. You know, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Would you pray a prayer like that? I was writing this sermon this week, and I thought to myself, will I pray a prayer like that for those who have treated me badly? Will I? Will you? Our natural human tendency is to hit back, right? Retaliate. Get the other person. No, no. Jesus said, forgive them. John Piper puts it very well when he says this. It's, I find this a very, uh, very telling quote here. You see, Jesus was misunderstood as much as we will ever be. He was treated unjustly as much as we will ever be. 
His own wonderful words of love were turned into blasphemous mockery. Just like many of your good intentions are twisted against you. And what did he do? What did Jesus do? When everything was twisted against him, all his good intentions. What did Jesus do? He absorbed it. He had an astonishing capacity of receiving blows and not returning them. How's that, eh? Easy? Is it easy? It's never easy, right? Tell me, please. It's never easy because our human nature is saying, boom, bang, boom, bang, you get back. Jesus just absorbs it. He absorbs it. He takes it. Takes it upon himself. See, this, this, this guy, this, this centurion, he had seen the darkness for three hours. He had, he had seen the earthquake that took place when Jesus died. There was an earthquake. The splitting of the rocks in Matthew 27. And standing now right opposite Jesus, the centurion observed everything carefully. And he makes a confession. Truly, this man was the son of God. And legend has it that he became a Christian. One of the commentators makes that point. In fact, um, uh, uh, John MacArthur uh, says that this is a miracle that took place, that the centurion became a Christian. That's how far MacArthur goes with it. Very possible. So friends, this morning, as we wind up, it begs the question then, who is this Jesus? How do we see him this morning? What about thinking about this unspeakable sacrifice? Why? Why? Don Carson puts it this way. We hover breathless at the edge of the mystery of the Trinity as the triune God's matchless love is displayed in the sacrifice of the cross, in the penal substitutionary death of the eternal incarnate Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us unspeakable sacrifice. Why? Romans chapter 5. I'll just give you one text here. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. That's why, friends, that's the unspeakable sacrifice. Let me ask you this morning, what's your take on Good Friday? Would you be able to say with the centurion, truly, this is the Son of God? What's your take on Christ dying for you at the cross? Because one day, friends, without that blood of Jesus shed on the cross, you and I will never Never be able to stand before the holy God and, and say how great we are unless we have trusted in this Savior Jesus. And when you know this Christ, he forgives you of all your sin. He pours his love into your heart. He transforms your life. He transforms your relationships. He helps you to send out to give the other turn, the other even though it is hard. 
Because everything is in the Lord's hands. And that's what he did. So this morning, I pray, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, that today you will. On this Good Friday, that you will thank God for the good Savior and what he has done. Otherwise, we will be lost. Totally and fully and utterly. Unspeakable sacrifice. Why? Because of God's love for us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the unspeakable sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. So much to learn. So much to apply. Heavenly Father, we pray that we rejoice in what Christ has done for us. That if there is anyone here who does not know Jesus today, on this Good Friday, that such a person will come and trust in Christ as his or her Savior. Lord, we thank you for taking our place at the cross. That you were forsaken so that we might not be forsaken. Amen. We're going to sing uh, this hymn as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. And the hymn is, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Shall we stand? <laughs>